2: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. A M slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions
3: apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
4: He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael
3: People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels.
5: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio.
6: No client comes to us and says, I have a data shortage. We have not heard that yet. Most clients come to us and say, I have data overload. I have so much data, I'm not really sure what to look at and what's compelling. And we spend a lot of our time actually peeling away a lot of the layers of things that have become clouding and confusing.
4: Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. I'm Bob Pittman, and our guest on this episode is Wendy Clark, global president and CEO of the legendary ad giant, DDB, a part of the Omnicom family. Wendy's story sounds part business textbook and part how to succeed manual. Born in the UK, came to the US at age 11, moved around schools a lot and had early signs of leadership as a shift manager at McDonald's at age 16. An English major in college with a weakness in poetry yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, rose from a receptionist at an agency to where she is today through stops at at and Coca-Cola and more, and Hillary Clinton too. She's been a major force for equality in the workplace and has a unique take on life-work balance. There are a lot of lessons to learn here, but first we want to cover her life in 60 seconds. Oh. Welcome, by the way.
6: Thank you. It's great to be here. Here we go. Okay.
4: Do you prefer... Phone calls or text?
6: Text probably for efficiency.
4: Cats or dogs? Dogs, 100%. Big Mac or Egg McMuffin?
6: Oh, I'm going to go Big Mac. 50 years old.
4: Atlanta or New York City?
6: Atlanta because that's where my family is.
4: Cardio or weights? Cardio. Milky Way or Snickers?
6: Oh, Snickers.
4: Sunrise or sunsets?
6: Always sunset.
4: What's your favorite city?
6: Ooh, I think I'm going to say Istanbul.
4: Ooh, favorite workout? Elliptical. Smartest person you know. Hillary Clinton. Childhood hero.
6: Princess Diana.
4: Favorite novel.
6: Catcher in the Rye.
4: Catcher in the Rye. Okay. Mm-hmm. Historical idol. Mother Teresa. Quote to live by.
6: Never be above doing anything.
4: Here's one that really plays to your strength. Favorite poet.
6: <laughs> oh gosh, don't have one. Shows okay. <laughs> you I
4: didn't do well in party. Who would play you in a movie?
6: I get told that I have the same sort of smile as Hilary Swank, so let's oh, go there. That, that a teeth, teethy smile.
4: Best live concert ever.
6: Ooh. Many of them you have provided me, so thank you. Um, oh, good. I went to the iHeart concert in Las Vegas with my son who got to see Logic, who was his hero, and the opportunity that you gave my son to meet Logic still brings tears to my eyes.
4: Okay, let's get started. You sit atop the legendary DDB. Does that rich history of advertising innovation affect the culture and how you do business today?
6: Well, of course. I think um, this is a 70-year-old agency with a storied past, as you point out, with Bill Birnbach in the name of our agency, one of the very forefather, if not the godfather of the practice of advertising today. So there's a tremendous pressure in there. There's a tremendous responsibility to live into that past and I feel that pressure, but I think that that's what leadership is. Leadership is both a pressure and a privilege.
4: So, Bernbach, he's the father of modern advertising. What was it before and what did it become?
6: Well, what he's best known for is the creation of the art director copywriter team, which I think almost every agency today practices in some form or fashion. And certainly as digital has emerged now, we have digital technologists as part of that. So the pair has now, in many cases, become sort of a triumvirate. But, you know, previous to that, copywriters and art directors worked independently. And uh, I think he manifested a way of working that said, if we believe that sight, sound, emotion are the best storytelling out there and the magic of storytelling, very much like this podcast, he believed that there was picture and imagery in that that needed to be evoked as well as spoken word and impact of language. And so I think that is the force that exists today.
4: The language he had was amazing, like think small, Mm -hmm. clever, memorable, How do you create that today and what's the sort of legacy of that that brings it into today's advertising?
6: I think we are always with our clients trying to find the most interesting thing they have to say and saying it in an interesting way in a way that's not disruptive and not forceful but a way that is invited. Advertising ultimately is an uninvited guest so we have to become invited so we have to find something interesting to say and we have to say it in an interesting way and I think then you get deserved attention from people and Globally, we're spending about two hours and 20 minutes a day on just social media, just social media. Think about that, you know, 10% of your day. It's not that people aren't willing to give attention. They are very much, but it needs to be deserved. It needs to be earned. We can't just force our agenda and what we want to say onto people. There has to be some sort of quid pro quo where consumers enjoy this. They find it useful, interesting, compelling, shareworthy. There's some sort of value that's created through that content, and that's very much our focus.
4: How do you get that conversation started? How do you get people to say, this is worthy of me making part of my life?
6: We spend a lot of time thinking about that. So probably best to talk about some examples. Skittles, uh, one of our clients, they've been a longtime Super Bowl sponsor. Skittles as a brand is known for doing things not in a predictable way. How do you become sort of unpredictable, interesting, shareworthy, compelling for the Skittles audience, which obviously tends to be younger? Two years ago, we made a Super Bowl spot for just one kid, one 16-year-old only saw the Super Bowl. I've never seen it. The CMO of Mars, Andrew Clark, he's never seen the spot. I mean, we literally, the 16-year-old and the creatives who worked on it are the ones who saw the spot with David Schwimmer. I mean, that was outrageous and outlandish, but it became this sort of phenomenon that Skittles fans and followers and consumers, importantly, people wanted to eat the candy, loved and followed in, in total. There were like 67,000 people who watched the kid watch the ad on facebook during the super bowl watching absolutely nothing but watching the kid watch the ad type thing so i mean it's just,
4: welcome to the new world but,
6: well i think it's knowing and understanding what compels and interests that audience what we spend a lot of time when we meet with our clients is truly living into the values of your brand and company and that's so right on skittles and there are many other companies and brands who could have done that and people have been like wow, ah, that doesn't make any sense at all but for skittles it was so right and then of course this year sort of doubling down on that we did a, a live broadway show which makes Again, absolutely no sense at all in why Candy would do a live Broadway show, but we had theater critics from all over New York come and review it, and it was a proper Broadway show. And the important fact behind both of these is the Skittle sales were up during the period both years. We don't do this because this is runaway imagination and creative people just errantly spending money. This is about creating brand impact. I mean, at the end of the day, I feel very comfortable sitting here saying I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I believe in businesses making money, and I believe that those businesses, in turn, will create good in the world. It's very much about creating impact and sales results for Skittles and doing it in a way that's interesting and saying it in an interesting way.
4: Going back a little bit on DDB, how do you get something that creates language that everybody adopts for their usage? I'm thinking about the Quaker Oats Mikey campaign, mm-hmm. where, gosh, that went. Far beyond Quaker Oats, suddenly they introduced it to right. the world, and it took off. Are those accidents, or do you plan them, or do you feed them, or what?
6: <laughs> it is about becoming part of culture. Ava sweet, try harder" is another famous DDB line. Uh, oh yes, like a good neighbor. stay Farm is there. It was written by our chairman emeritus, Keith Reinhardt, and Barry Manila. You know, two all-beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, sesame seed bun.
4: Wow, I'm impressed.
6: I did work with those. You got that? Yeah. All those have become transcendent to advertising and part of culture. What people don't want is wrapping paper. They don't want a veneer. They want to know truly who you are. More and more of these big companies now, you're seeing them really become very transparent with their values, live their values in the world, and that propagates through their communications and advertising, and I think that's the best communications and advertising we can do.
4: We coach our talent here that, you know, you're somebody's best friend riding in the empty seat next to them in the car every day. Mm -hmm. You have to expose yourself, and it's really hard to expose yourself. Most people want to, put on a veneer of who they are, it's very hard for people to yeah. do. And, and I think brands, it's got to be even harder because you've yes. got a committee of people yeah. talking about it. Let's jump to Needham, Harper, and Steers, also part of the background. Yes. What do you think that brought to DDB and what's the legacy of that? There was the old Kraft, General Mills, and Esso, for people who remember mm-hmm. it before ExxonMobil mm-hmm. with the put a tiger in your tank, which also became a cultural phenomenon.
6: Well, quite literally, what it brought to DDB is John Wren, because John Wren came from Needham, and Keith Reinhardt, who's our chairman emeritus, so two of the probably more iconic people in our company actually came via Needham. There were three companies that came together to form Omnicom in the early 80s, so it was Needham, DDB, and BBDO.
4: You've got a new logo, which harks back to those days, What lessons are you trying to evoke from the past? That's so nice of you to to ask. Because
6: it really, I think, is important as someone who's worked at AT AT&T and Coke. I'm a bit of a legacy girl. At Coke, I spent a tremendous amount of time in the archives because, you know, at a 130-year-old company, you can find a lot of the answers in the past. Great brands have a foot in the past and a foot in their future. I'd never want to forget that. Our past doesn't hold all the answers, certainly, But it is a tremendous advantage at every juncture.
4: So when you talk to employees about what makes DDB unique and what they need to remember about the past that's sort of a guiding principle of the agency, what is it?
6: Well, the gift we have, of course, is Bill Birnbeck and that he was one of the magic men. I mean, certainly would be high, I think, on anyone's list of the magic people. But he was also the CEO. This was a time when the creative person actually was the leader of the company. Too. Which was unusual. It's certainly unusual now. I think you've seen us sort of drift away from the creative people being in the top job. There are notable exceptions, very successful exceptions. But, you know, you have a, a suit like me, generally in the CEO role. So when I talk about this. I want
4: to point out she's not wearing a suit <laughs> just, to, just so we get the visual right. Yeah.
6: So I do think part of what I try to compel and remind our team is that Creativity is the most powerful force in business. We believe that it is the biggest, most important, often, lever that you can pull to propel your business forward, to create a brand, to create impact. Our roots and our genes not only support that, but evidence that. There are moments in our history, I would say, in the not-too-distant past, that we've let go of that, and we need to reclaim it.
4: We're talking some about great advertising. Back then, it was print, radio, and TV, and some billboards on the side. Today, we have so many consumer touch points. Just on the TV, we've got four or five ways to get it. Uh, radio today is on over, our company loans on 250 platforms, not just the Incredible. broadcast radio device anymore. Print is sort of morphed into digital. Everything's interconnected. How does that affect? advertising. I mean, you no longer do the great TV ad and everything else takes care of itself. How do you get rid of these silos and pull it all together so you're thinking about consumer centric?
6: So important. I think we try to be as much as we can platform agnostic and have a bias on the idea. If our bias and our fundamental focus is always on the idea, it's how the idea comes to life no matter the platform. And fighting constantly for the purity of that idea is really important. From a creative perspective, that's how we would think about it. We obviously want to understand where the audience is and reach them really well, and there's an expectation now that you do anyway, that you're not clumsy or ham-fisted. But mass advertising is critical for the brands that we work on. These are very, very big brands, and that notion of mass reach and mass engagement with something that's compelling is very important, along with, of course, one-to-one and a lot of the narrower platforms you can use. But just about every brand and company is different. Like I was actually just with a CMO of a brand last night for dinner and he was telling me radio is his number one platform. It's the most effective for his business. For some of our very large brands, TV is absolutely critical still. Um, this CMO last night was suggesting that he's probably overweighted in digital. I think there has been a little bit of a rush to do that. And I think there's a little bit of crowding now and it's harder and harder to break through. That's not me suggesting it's bad. It's just meaning we can't be ever lazy. That's why I I resist more than anything is just ticking off a list and saying, well, we did that, we did that, and we did that.
4: Obviously, I I see things more through the audio lens than anything else these days. But we had someone who ran a spot in the Super Bowl. The commercial on Monday morning on the radio was talk about the spot in the Super Bowl Mm -hmm. so that it begins to tie it together. Are you seeing that each device every medium has a place in it that i want people on social to be doing this and related to the message i want the tv to be doing this i want the radio to do this i want the billboard to do this
6: because of the preponderance of connection points now someone has obviously got to look over all of that and make that work but it was funny we're old enough now to all know the term matching luggage In the 90s and the early 2000s, we used to say, well, let's just make it matching luggage. And I reflect on that now. I think, gosh, that's so lazy. And that was the goal. That was our stated goal. If it all matches, it must all be right. This isn't about matching luggage. And I think that that is a very lazy way of doing marketing and advertising. This is about propagation, the kernel, this deep, lovely insight and wonderful discovery that you stumble upon that you then manifest into some wonderful story and something that's powerful and compelling and interesting to people and it goes out into the world and i think what we do now more than anything is just nurture 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 we were doing some internal meetings recently very fortunate that ddb worldwide was a network of the year at the one show this year which was a congratulations absolute treat absolute treat but reflecting on the work that did well at the one show we talk a lot internally that So many times that work was dead. I mean, it's so important to tell people that you don't just rock up with a, we're going to do, you know, what do you think? And the client goes, great, unlimited money, unlimited funds, go to every touch point, it'll be great. No, no, I mean, at every stage, there's something, there's a legal issue or there's a funding issue, there's a production issue, there's a timing issue, there's some sort of technology hurdle. There are constant The CEO's husband
4: doesn't like it.
6: The CEO's husband doesn't like it or children. Usually it's children. Children, yeah. My my 16-year-old, yeah. I think that's the reality of these great campaigns. I think it's so important to actually unpack the behind the curtain. And I recently I heard that uh, Nike and Wyden were unpacking Kaepernick a little bit and some of the hurdles they had to go through, which I think is so important for us to share all this because otherwise we create a false goal of how this work gets done. It's really, really hard work and you've really got to love it and you've really got to nurture and protect it and stay with it every step of the way across these channels.
4: Mark Pritchard, who I'm a great fan of, you know, here he is at P&G and he really unpacks his entire media plan and looks at everything afresh. I mean, how many people do that? Decides, as you pointed out, that he was overspending in digital, which he's publicly said, and, you know, move things around and suddenly, you know, he's back in radio, he's back in outdoor in a major way and had three record quarters of growth. Do you think that people are beginning to take a step back now and relook at things? Does the agency have to push them to do that? Do you think the client is pushing the agency to do it? Where is that process at this point?
6: Well, I think that the one thing that is true is that every client and every agency are constantly looking at investment now. Back in the days when we'd say matching luggage, we were also looking at our Media plans, probably quarterly. You know, I remember the big binder on my desk and I'd open it up and unwind the pages and look at all the color strips and then wind it back up and put it up for a quarter. We're looking at our clients' media investment every day. So much of this is measurable. There's real-time performance, there's data, there's cultural conversations that are happening that you didn't anticipate that you then suddenly want to shift money and get behind and start to fuel a little bit more. So I think media is seen as very dynamic now rather than static which is a fantastic advantage for us as marketers.
4: 80% of TV viewers are doing another electronic Mm -hmm. media at the same time, so clearly not watching everything. How on earth do we deal with that in a world where it's not so clean anymore?
6: Well, I think arrogance as a marketer, and I can say that because I was a client for most of my career, you have to take that down a notch. It used to be that marketing and how we all learned in school and everything else was you prepared your plans, you put your plans into the world, you watched your plans, you measured your plans six or eight weeks later, you had some observations, you made adjustments, and you went forward with your next plan. It was this sort of very clinical and clean way of working. It looked good. But it was very arrogant, right? It just suggests that suddenly you know all the answers and that you're going to put something into the world that everyone's going to stop and engage with. When I was at Coke, we did a very sort of of back-of-the-napkin type analysis, but it helped make a point. We looked at YouTube and all the content on YouTube and how much of it we had created versus how much consumers had created. You want to guess what the answer was. What? 80% created by consumers, not us. Wow. 20% was done by Coke. We had put 20% of the content into the world. 80% of the content and conversation happening around Coke had nothing to do with anyone at Coke. So your opportunity now, to your point on multi-screen viewing, on very busy consumer lives, the average American, you know, is impacted by 6,000 brand impressions daily. With that sort of environment, your opportunity is to actually be a little less arrogant, to come into that conversation, to really observe and see what could be important, powerful, interesting, compelling to your target audience, and to become part of it. Not to try to dominate the community, but to act as a single member of that community. What could you add to that? How could you make it better? How could you be an invited guest instead of an uninvited guest? And I think as long as you get that mindset right, and the brands and companies get that mindset right, they just see themselves as one member of that community trying to contribute and make that target audience's life better.
4: We think about ratings, which I've lived with my whole life, the old days of the facts of the overnights when I was in TV, you know, you sort of hold your breath, hoping they'll be good. Today, we have possibilities of looking at sales attribution, not attribution to clicks, but actually attribution to how much did we sell? Does this replace ratings? I mean, are we going to turn the entire media industry upside down?
6: I don't think it is a replacement of, you know, we've got more measurement to you, title of your podcast. We have more math around us than we've ever, ever had before. And it's in more useful timing than it's ever been it's less delayed it's less reflective it's more progressive it's more predictive it's more real time no client comes to us and says i have a data shortage we have not heard that yet most clients come to us say is i have data overload i have so much data i'm not really sure what to look at and what's compelling and we spend a lot of our time actually peeling away a lot of the layers of things that have become clouding and confusing rather than the key and core indicators. I mean, almost every business, every CEO runs their business off just a handful of indicators that they know are very germane to their business, and we need to get back to that.
4: Every company, every human today is at risk for fake news, things that aren't true being said but suddenly catch fire and move as if they're a truth. How do you think about that as someone who is working with a company to be that Mm. brand steward and really protect the brand?
6: One of the most important things that I think business leaders can understand is that the truth is irrelevant. I don't think there's anything like the truth because you have your truth and I have my truth. And as a brand and company, you have to go into the world understanding that it's truthy, but it's not a truth or the truth. I mean, I can remember having meetings at Coke. I mean, they were outraged. What do you mean? This is the truth. This is what the product is. It doesn't matter. There is a set of people who think the product is something different. We have to operate in a world where as brands and companies, we have to be willing, again, without arrogance, to meet consumers at their truth and work them back to our truth.
4: There was a saying that used to be above my desk when I was in my early 20s, when I was a radio programmer. Reality is what you perceive it to be. Yeah. And it seems to be true today than ever. Yes. Just hold on a second, because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break.
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant.
5: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Wendy Clark. Let's go back in time. Okay. You were born in the UK. I was. Uh, you evidently had a very influential mother who raised you. She came to Florida when you were 11. I mm-hmm. had to leave the good old, I guess you were the first Brexit. <laughs> and uh, you went to five schools from the fifth to ninth grade. I did. How do you think that affected you? No, yeah.
6: You know, the funny thing is, honestly, it was just not something I had carried with myself. I think I was in my 40s when I realized that I'd gone to five schools in five years on two different continents. It was really shaping. I mean, what I say today is I can walk in any room. I'm never a stranger. I don't have problems making friends. Probably something like that either breaks you or helps you. And uh, I'd have a certain amount of self-confidence to try it again every year. My mother would have told you it's character building, so hopefully I'm full of character.
4: You are. (laughs) You were a manager at McDonald's at 16. Now, how did that happen? Why do you let a 16-year-old be a shift manager? Shift
6: manager. Now, I do love telling this story because obviously we do work with the brand today, and I'm a huge champion of the brand. Because, you know, one in eight Americans have worked at McDonald's. It is one of those formative places where you can learn a lot. And I, way before I was on the agency side and and working with McDonald's, I was a huge champion of that experience. I mean, at 16 years old, to be empowered to run a shift of a restaurant where you're dealing with customer dissatisfaction, cash management, employee insubordination, product quality. I mean, just think about everything that's involved in running a restaurant. And at 16 years old, it was really formative to be given that kind of responsibility. And it sort of created a hunger in me. I like that responsibility. I like that leadership. I like that pressure and privilege. McDonald's do that with teenagers around the world routinely, giving them these opportunities. And I think this taste of what business can be and leadership can be. You could easily have a career at McDonald's starting from not very much. And I love that they believe in every kid in America to have that potential.
4: After college, um, by the way, you were a major in English. You were quoted as being hell-bent on being in advertising. What on earth made you think advertising was the place to be? And how did you make that job?
6: Well, I, I wanted to write. You know, when you're an English major, too, everyone says, what are you going to do with that? You're going to teach, right? And I was like, I don't want to teach. So I had to come up with an answer what I was going to do because everyone kept asking me what I was going to do. And so I said, well, I'm going to be in advertising. That was the next best thing I could come up with was that I would write advertising. So I got my first job. I was a receptionist in an ad agency, which I actually like talking about a lot, especially today to be able to say to our lovely agency that I've done just about every job in between. But I just wanted to get my foot in the door. And I thought, if I get in here, I can prove myself. They'll let me write something. And they did. I started writing press releases. Turns out, Writing wasn't necessarily my forte. You know, when you get the edit back and the last thing that you wrote was through all the red lines, the only thing you wrote was the, you know, you realize you're probably not. <laughs> you should go to the accounts. <laughs> so I uh, started leading accounts. It was fun. So a woman-owned ad agency in Atlanta named the Denmark Group. Still in business today. Priscilla Jessup is a founder. You know, when you change jobs, you do that all email and you put everyone in blind copy to say, you know, my new number and my new this. And I mean, how many times have I done that to Priscilla Jessup over the years? I mean, I've changed jobs a lot. And I can remember when I sent her the Coke one and I got this lovely response. She's like, oh, honey, I can't believe you're running marketing at Coke and you used to answer my phones. <laughs> I learned so much in the couple of years there.
4: So you're a receptionist. There has to be some takeaway from that about <laughs> treating people, unnoticed talent.
6: Yeah. You asked me my, in the 60 second thing, the words I would live by, which is never be above doing anything. And that was certainly came from being a receptionist. There were people who looked right past me, looked over me, I felt quite inconsequential. You know, I'm competitive enough where that just fueled me. So I was like, all right, look past me. We'll see if you look past me again.
4: You wound up at Bell South Singular. You left, you joined an agency in Austin. You were still in your twenties and you, Turned out to be this manager with a lot of older reports. The young person is the boss. I was. How did you handle that? I was 29
6: when I went to GSDNM, and I was head of account service, and it was a $1.2 billion agency. GSDM had Southwest Airlines and Air Force and Land Rover and some very big accounts. And so I came in as head of accounts, and yes, I think just about every one of my direct reports was older than I was. And Until I got into my 40s, it didn't really start to even out.
4: Um, I have bad news for you.
6: Yeah. I'm, the, I'm the, At a certain me. point,
4: you look around and go, wait a minute, yes. I'm the oldest person I'm in the, the room. I'm the
6: mother. I'm very clear at DDB, I'm the mother. But I mean, it didn't face me. I think most of it is, am I adding value? Am I bringing value? I think if you're so busy, worried about that, you're not worried about the business. And I think as long as we were having conversations where I felt like I was additive and appreciative to what they were doing, helping them do their jobs better, I don't think they worried about how old
4: I was. Do you think it affected your management style when you had to manage people older than you So they're not going to give you age respect.
6: I'm sure it did, but it wasn't conscious if it did. I don't think anyone gets out of bed any morning and says, you know, I just want to be average. Right? I don't think anyone gets up and comes to work and goes, I'm just going to hit it right down the middle today. I'm not really interested. No, people get out of bed every morning to make the effort to go into the world, to make an impact, to make a difference. They go to their jobs to get things done. And I think as long as I can be part of that formula with people then I think it doesn't matter what my age is or my gender or anything else. We're part of making an impact. You know, we got out of bed and we made a difference today.
4: So you left, you went to a client, SBC, which became at t You were overseeing a $2 billion marketing budget and you were in your 30s. How did you keep that from going to your head, driving you crazy or becoming an egomaniac or did it not even phase you?
6: Ed Whitaker, who was the CEO, his voice is in my mind often and he just had incredible confidence in me. What I learned from him was his ability to make decisions and then no referendums. I can remember when we were doing the name change at AT&T to the new AT&T, and you know, we were in San Antonio, and we were going to do this press announcement and everything I said to him. And we all called him Mr. Whitaker, by the way. Only his very direct reports called him Ed. So I said, Mr. Whitaker, we've got to... We've got to change the logos on the outside of the building for the announcement. You can do the press and everything here. We can't have the old logo. But there was this real secrecy about what we had named the company. Right. And he said, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to risk it leaking out. And I felt really you know, strongly about it. And I just sort of said, these images are going to go around the world in business media. We've got to have this image right. And he looked at me. And you, know, you get kind of one press with him. And he said, all right. But if it gets out, it's on you. And that was it. Meeting over. Cut to these poor sign installers working under black drapes over the weekend and trying to do it by the dark of night and everything
4: else. Did it leak? It did not leak. At this point in your life, I think you've got three kids by now?
6: My last one was born on the day of Department of Justice approval of the singular merger. So I should have called him singular, but I called him (laughs) J.B.
4: Let's jump now to life work balance. Which I I hate. I know you've got some points of view on it, and I want you to... Tell us
6: about them. Yeah, you know, for the duration of my career, people have said to me, you know, you should just balance your work and life. You should take extra time and you should do your family stuff. And that sounds good. There's absolutely no way of getting to work-life balance. And so it just became this false goal that the more people said it to me, the angrier I got about it. So my little pivot on it, and yes, it's wordplay, is work-life integration. And I just believe very progressive companies like iHeart, like DDB, like others out there, allow you to integrate your work and your life in a way that works for you. And what works for me probably doesn't work for you. But you and I will hold our teams accountable to getting their jobs done in a way that they can get their jobs done and also function in their lives. And as long as you have that, then I think this work-life integration thing can work beautifully. But don't tell me to balance it because balance isn't an outcome. It's, it's neither a goal nor an outcome. So let's talk about integration and let's talk about how you can seamlessly weave your, your life and your work together.
4: You jumped to Coke, you rose to be the president of Sparkling Brands and Strategy Marketing in North America, and then you took a sabbatical for three months to work on the Hillary Clinton campaign. What drove you to that? How was Coke okay with that? How did you manage it?
6: The way I approached Coke about it was like I was having a fourth child. I just said, it's like a maternity leave. I'm going to go away and have another baby. They were great. And honestly, it felt like something that I felt duty-bound to do. I really couldn't imagine not doing it. And it was very difficult personally. There were lots of trade-offs to doing it. Probably wasn't a great professional decision at Coke. But I just felt I didn't want to regret not helping.
4: What important lesson did you learn for business that you got from working on a campaign?
6: The things that you learn are the truth around brands and the attachment that consumers can have to brands and the emotion that you can create around that. And those enduring truths of, Functioning from your values, of having something interesting to say and saying it in an interesting and compelling way to the audience you're trying to reach, and stripping away the veneer and getting as much as you can away from the optics of something and getting to the heart of it. All those things are truths, whether it's a political campaign, whether it's a brand or a company.
4: 2016, you moved to DDB to run North America, and then you jumped into your current role. Contrast that client side. From the agency side, how does it feel?
6: They are different. They're very different. I mean, number one, when I was in meetings, I had to remember that I wasn't in charge. (laughs) So, you know, you probably go through a meeting with a client. I'm like, great, so we're going to do this, this, and this, and this. And I sort of look at the client and go, oh, wait, that's you. Role reversal was a little challenging. I do think that the number one skill I've learned on the agency side is resilience. By definition, in an agency, if you're winning 30 or 40% of the pitches that you're in, you're doing as well as anyone like baseball, you're having a banner year, which by definition means you're losing more than you're winning. And that was a really hard thing for me to get my mind around. Clients don't lose. I mean, we control the variables and outcomes to make sure that we don't lose. And so being on the other side of that and feeling this sense of sort of loss and people not choosing us or not picking us really was bruising for a while. So resilience, I think, has been the number one thing I've learned in the last year. You're
4: such years. a strong marketer, though. How hard is it? To put something out there that you know as a marketer is absolutely the right thing and someone else says, yeah, yeah, it's so
6: hard. It is so hard. I mean, the number one thing in advertising with clients is trust. I would imagine it's very similar in your business. When there's trust in a relationship. It's the
4: only thing that matters. There's
6: nothing we can't do. There's nothing we won't experiment and do. And I look at our highest performing relationships, John Lewis in London with Adam and Eve and the the years of epic work that's come out of that, but there's such a huge basis of trust with that client now that they go there with us. That's the piece that you can't shortcut. As a new CEO, I had to show up again and again and again and again and again before I got that voice and ability to try and persuade, but I was willing to, and I always will.
4: So let's talk about the essence of you. Everyone who knows you and everyone who knows about you and knows you have this very strong moral compass. You've got this strong commitment to women in the workplace, both directly at DDB and broader as an advocate, role model, and mentor of others. You've done mandatory unconscious bias training for DDBs, I think for all 2,000 employees. You've got this great line that says talent has no gender. Talk a little bit about where that comes from and what you think that responsibility is and how you make that fit in your work and your family.
6: Thank you for that question. My number one motivation for it is my own children So i have two daughters and a son they have the same genetic makeup they have the same education they've gone to the same school and yet i think they look out into the world and see different opportunity and potential different outcomes that are available to them and that just doesn't sit well with me it doesn't compute why would that be the case if everything they have as i launch them into the world is the same what I want to be able to say to them is my time spent in business was made trying to equalize that opportunity to you. That would be the end of the story if I got to write it the way I'd like to. I think there's very much an expectation, and rightly so, that women will help create a wake around them that lifts others as they go. I think it's probably stronger expectation on women than men. Sometimes that feels fair, sometimes that doesn't feel fair, but regardless of that, I'm happy to take that on and I'm happy to carry that mantle. I actually wish that men and women shared that equally because I think we'd go faster, obviously. But that's okay. And, you know, we've come into DDB. We've changed about 75% of the leaders in North America in the last three years. Our CFO in the U.S. is a woman. Our CCO in New York is a woman. We just installed a new head of New York as a woman. All of that is in service of great outcomes and creating the impactful work that will move our clients' business. I know that a diverse and inclusive team will arrive at better solutions than one that isn't. That is absolutely proven.
4: Let me ask you about one other kind of diversity, young people. Do you make it a point to try and get a lot of young voices into the organization?
6: Advertising is a bit of a, quote, young people's business. I was jokingly calling myself mom earlier, but I really am mom. It was probably last year's number, but I think we were 64% millennial. So we are a young business, which I love. I do think, though, making sure that we've got those voices trickling through and shaping the agenda of the company. So we're going to actually expand what we define as our leadership team to include a much more diverse and inclusive set of voices. It allows those young people and young voices to shape the direction of our business, which is what they want to. And by the way, it's what our clients want, too.
4: Media and advertising has gone through years of change One of the big things that people talk about are the silos. You know, the advertising, you sort of built silos with media and creative, and then we had radio and TV. And Mm -hmm. what are you doing to get rid of the silos, and what are you replacing them with?
6: Any client that comes to us wants three things. They want speed, efficiency, and, you know, great work. Silos just slow you down on at least two of those, and ultimately that can impact the third. We've had to move away from running our company. I would sort of talk about it vertically. So we were running in verticals and run to a horizontal now and put best place talent on best place opportunity in real time, which is hard for a company that is spread out, hard for a company that has contracts that are based on hourly commitments. So there's a lot of having to evolve the structure and the infrastructure of our company to do it. But our talent want to do it, number one. They love the opportunity and work on different things, and that's important. And it gets to greater outcomes. So I I talk about T-shaped a lot. I think a lot of people in our company have a deep vertical expertise. They might be a radio copywriter that they're really great at. But they also have a horizontal potential to tap into a team and do something much more broad than their vertical. And so we really are working in sort of that T-shaped brand now.
4: If you were some young person that was hell-bent on getting into advertising, What's your advice?
6: My advice sort of stays with what it is, which is just never be above doing anything. I think that work ethic has served me and continues to serve me well. My least favorite word is entitlement. I think entitled people just stymie themselves. I did work incredibly hard. I always try to add that to the story. I was very lucky, but I made some trade-offs and I worked very, very hard But if you're willing to work hard and you're willing to come into it with an openness and not be above doing anything that someone asks you and put yourself into it fully, I think you can create a career and an outcome for yourself that you'll be really both satisfied and rewarded by and and happy about.
4: Let's wrap up the way we always do. This is about math and magic. Who's the greatest mathematician you know? That person who just knows the math side of marketing so well that it blows your mind.
6: My mind goes to a couple. Les Bonnet at our own agency, which is a little bit self-anointing, but he uh, is an econometrician for us at Adam and Eve. He's published. He's done a lot of work with IPA, and his his evidence is what we function off. He wrote a paper called The Long and the Short of It, and if you haven't read it, it is an incredibly instructive piece of work. So Les would be on there. Aaron Matz, who's at Hearts and Science now, who was at Lect. I mean, she's brilliant. She's incredible. Uh, Scott Haggardorn. Terry Young. Those are some of the people that jump through my mind. Oh, the greatest of all time is a very hard one, but those are some of the current day people. Okay, I we'll
4: think call it Hall of Fame. Greatest Magician.
6: Greatest Magician, yeah. I know it sounds unsurprising. I will have to say Bill Bernbach.
4: It'd be surprising if you didn't. It'd be
6: surprising. I think it would be shocking if I didn't. And his contemporaries. I think we are all still, as an industry, very inspired by the Ogilvies and the Burnettes and the J. Walter Thompson's and the which is what makes me a little sad that some of their names are disappearing because I think that they are still legends. I'm not sure we have the next generation. There are some very legendary people in our industry at the moment, and I'm sure future generations will reflect on them the way we reflect on Burnback and others, but he has to be up there. Thank you. Thank you. Wendy Clark. Lovely.
4: Here's a couple of things i take away from our discussion with Wendy Clark. One, Wendy knows advertising is an uninvited guest so she works doubly hard to ensure the consumer finds value in the messaging. Two, whether it's Skittles' Broadway musical, where people are streaming the music, or a tagline about Mikey liking it, for Wendy, the goal of great ad work isn't just brand lift, but to truly make the brand part of the culture. Three, Wendy's mantra is never be above anything. Her least favorite word is entitlement because people who feel entitled are just stymieing their opportunities. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening.
2: That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor, Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.